Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones exteriones y culto. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlqvist, cool boy. And I am Brian Kotick. We are your co-host for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% time zone difference issues. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. It's one hour. It's definitely 1%. Where in the world are you, Joel? I am in Copenhagen. Where in the world are you, Ryan? I'm in London. We are back in our home bases, it looks like. Yeah, and there's an hour time difference between us, which we can't seem to figure out. Is that because you're mentally still in Scandinavia? <laughs> I thought you were just going to stop at still. <laughs> are you mentally still? <laughs> uh, no, I just, I'm now an imperialist and think that every time I tell you my hours, you will adapt accordingly. <laughs> Okay, you're very much mentally in the UK. It like. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. That's It's a very American approach to things, I guess, especially working for an American firm. Just to quickly go over the people helping us operate this podcast, um, this season is running on the pure steam of the Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IRA Reporter, which is our sponsor for season three, as our listeners know. It's an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IRA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IRA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to the IA Reporter, visit i8reporter.com. IA Reporter has a, a new contributor, I read, in a byline. A female name that I have not seen before. Oh, really? I don't think it's a new one. I, I would know. Is it Lisa, maybe? Yes. Yeah, she's been on for a while. She does a lot of the substantive analysis of the tricky cases. I think she's based in Houston. Oh, okay. Good job, Lisa. Yeah, yeah. She seems to be really smart. She also speaks all the languages, which is helpful for a service like IA Reporter. When, for example, the ACMEA uh, set aside in German court came out, she was the one we could go to to read the German court judgment. Nice. Nice to have. Yeah, and definitely. Speaking of languages, ish, ah, not a very good segue. <laughs> Let's hear it. You're just back from Zagreb. Well, it is a good, it is a good segue because I actually flew over with a Belgian woman named Claire Morel de Westgaver, who lives in London, but she's from Belgium originally. We landed there. We met up with a woman named Emma. She lives in London, but she has a Croatian past, and she whipped it out with this other woman who was joining us, who was from Serbia, who can understand each other's languages. So it was definitely a hodgepodge of languages being thrown around. And you insisted on speaking Russian. Yeah, exactly. I was like, there's no Spanish in this country. Uh, but How was it, though? You were speaking at a conference. I haven't even talked to you. What Did you speak yourself? Or did you moderate something? Or I, I spoke myself about uh, the art of advocacy. 
Um, so we there were two panels. One was on the art of written advocacy. The other one was on the art of oral advocacy, which is the one that I participated on. And it was for the ICC YAF um, uh, Croatian division uh, conference. So they're actually trying to build up the Croatian arbitration culture there. And I think this was just part of it. So there was a bunch of UK people actually flying in and also... Um, a majority women. I saw one full female panel in the first panel, which was uh, refreshing and nice to see. So, oh, that's rare. But can I ask you, since you were a speaker, mm-hmm. I assume there were bios circulated with info <laughs> on the speakers. You know what I'm going to ask you. And I did mention the arbitration station, Joel. Okay, so it was in in the conference program. No, but there wasn't a full program, but there was a leaflet. But I also talked about it in the introduction, my, the verbal introduction given to me, um, and also at the cocktail reception afterwards. So it, okay, good. It Still was not featured. on your on your web page profile. I noticed though, but I'll I'll email HR at Winston Strong and have that rectified. Please do, please do. But no, but it was a really good experience, and it, it was. I talked to some of the people. Um, from local Croatian law firms, and they have an interesting thing in Croatia that they're not allowed to be affiliated. They they cannot be a branch of an international law firm in Croatia. You have to be just loosely affiliated with. So one law firm that I talked to in Croatia, they were affiliated with DLA Piper, but they were not a DLA Piper oh, branch. Oh, I didn't know that about Croatia. I know it's the case in some other jurisdictions. I think China most mm-hmm. famously. For example, I didn't know it was the case in Croatia. Ah, so that's why you sometimes see international law firms that have offices elsewhere in the Balkans or like in Vienna and they work out of Vienna towards the Balkans, but they don't have offices in Croatia. That explains it. There you go. Oh, smart. And a lot of women as well, you said. (laughs) Yes. Maybe not in Croatia generally, but at the conference. (laughs) It was diverse, diverse, diverse. So it was nice to be part of the minority. Yeah, speaking of diversity and minorities, we have the biggest piece of news in the arbitration world lately. You're pregnant. <laughs> Baby I arbitration. Thought, I thought we would leave a nice like blank space to insert JC intro there, but oh, sure. We, <laughs> okay. Cue <laughs> cue music. Cue music. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I, I got, got 99 problems, problems but arbitration. I got the rap patrol on the so JC has some issues with with arbitration, and this I think I, I I'm not being overly dramatic when I say I've seen this shared in 50 different contexts by 50 different people in my various uh, social media and email flows. It's a big thing when it's uh, on the pop cultural uh, scene that arbitration is is part of a dispute. So uh, Sean Carter. If we're lawyers, aka JC, <laughs> Haven't heard larger that than life character, is involved in a contractual dispute in the US. And it's administered by the AAA in, in the US, the American Arbitration Association. And they are, it seems, I haven't actually read the underlying documents, have you? No, no, not yet. No, yeah, then we're equally uninformed. But it, it seems that the arbitration is at the stage where they are to appoint arbitrators and under the AAA. The arbitrators are appointed from a roster that the AAA keeps, and uh, there aren't a lot of African Americans or or black people on the list, which upset JC and his lawyers. So they successfully, which is the news, I guess, yeah. managed to get a New York court to halt the process 
uh, on this ground that there aren't enough black arbitrators to, to settle it uh, fairly basically uh, i don't know what they're going to do now though but that's or at least that's the way it's been reported in general news outside it might be that they uh, get something wrong in terms of the arbitration procedure because it seems strange uh, as most of our listeners i think would agree as well that you could at this stage rather than at the contractual drafting stage where you agree to an arbitration clause can come and complain that the choice of arbitrators aren't sufficient Right. Um, it would basically say that you're validating your own consent at the time of arbitration. It's it's just like if an institution institutes a new rule, y- even though you've signed on to your arbitration agreement years before, you're kind of impliedly signing on to any developments yeah, to those rules. exactly. And I think regardless of what you feel about the provoking lack of diversity in, in arbitration, that JC or rather his lawyers should have considered this when drafting the agreement rather than now. Or at the very least, as a biased former SEC employee, they should have opted for an institution which does not appoint from a fixed roster, but has there you go. flexibility. For all the African-Americans in Sweden. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think he could also have had his own party appointed arbitrator to make sure that that was happening. And also, how did he find out the races of people just by their names? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, it's a bit tricky, I think. Right. Uh, I think I think the, I mean obviously his lawyers did some research, but it's all I mean. What do you do? Google names and look for for pictures. Yeah, it's, Facebook uh, stock the roster. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, and I mean speaking of the lawyers, his law firm is not a model of diversity either, as some people pointed out. He's represented by a bunch of white lawyers, and there's like three, no way. Uh, I didn't even see that. Partners are African American <laughs> at the firm. <laughs> That's hilarious. But you do whatever you can in order to uh, to get a win, I guess. And it's a pretty big. It's like I can't remember the exact figure, but it's over two hundred million dollars U.S. So it's a it's a big dispute over his uh, former clothing brand, I guess, that he sold to some big company. Right. But that's not to. I mean, the merits of his challenge aside, that does not even come close to addressing the issue of diversity in the arbitrator pool. No. So we could flag that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this will be a nice bridge to our happy fun time topic about uh, defective arbitration clauses. You could, of course, try to change the arbitrator pools by specifying in your arbitration clause what kind of arbitrator you want already at the drafting stage. But that's true. We'll get back to that might create problems at a later stage if it's hard to find people who match the criteria you lay down in the in the arbitration clause right but we'll get back to that that's a post beer and on this friday afternoon as we record before that we have two other more substantive topics as is customary in arbitration station i think first we'll do uh, adverse inference one of the more nebulous concepts in international good arbitration. word that's the best word to describe it it is what's this is a saying or maybe it's not even a saying it's something that someone said once that um, it's like na- nailing jello to a wall you know? <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were define. gonna say like make up something like if you can't be square be nebulous <laughs> oh no no but no i'm way more down with uh, colloquialisms <laughs> yeah uh no i've never heard that but that's exactly what it is yes but nevertheless we won't shy away and with some able assistance from rishab our researcher we will discuss what a tribunal's power or uh, mandate to use or draw rather adverse inference from a party's behavior actually means we don't really know but maybe we'll be uh, misinformed at a much higher level. <laughs> that segment. 
Speaking of misinformed at a higher level, our second segment will be about uh, art arbitration. That is right. I'm talking about artwork that is submitted to an arbitral dispute. Um, again, with the help of our researcher, we'll be tackling this issue and also going into some examples um, that have come up as people have known in pop culture and even have been reenacted in a Hollywood format. Ooh. Ooh. But uh, we'll we'll go through it. And, and I was actually talking about it in preparation for this. We have a conference at my office right now, and um, I was telling people what the segment was going to be on the podcast, and they were um, most baffled by the um, how parties, including a state, for example, would be able to agree to the arbitration. So hopefully we'll be able to nail some jello to the wall on that issue as well. I see a common thread for for this. And then finally, to just deviate from the common thread, we'll discuss for Happy Fun Time, as I already hinted at, um, defective or pathological arbitration clauses. We made a call a few episodes ago, and we actually got a, a bunch of interesting clauses submitted by listeners. Uh, arbitration clauses that aren't very good, basically, and mm-hmm. why they aren't good, and we'll hopefully have a laugh or two at other people's expense. All right, we got a good setup. Let's move on to the first segment. Turn into junior professor uh, monster and speak for 20 minutes uninterrupted. Can I just ask you, Ryan, how, how do we properly pronounce this term? Adverse inferences. Adverse. Okay, so not adverse. Oh, where do you put the... Um, no, it's... This subject matter is at adverse to something else. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, it's if, it's an ad, but if it's an adjective, then it would be... An adverse sounds like a, a poetic commercial for something. <laughs> it's an adverse. Okay, right good. <laughs> adverse inference. Uh, the jello to the wall. Where does this come in in arbitration typically? Well, basically, it's in scenarios where the tribunal lacks the power to enforce its decision or it does not want to exercise a power that it has. And the most typical scenario and the one that I think we'll stick with uh, is described by Jeremy Sharp, who used to represent the US in treaty cases and now is a partner with a major law firm that I can't remember. Sherman Sterling, perhaps. But he said anyway uh, that arbitral tribunals can and often do order the production of documents, yet they lack the power to enforce orders for production in the same way that courts can. The difficulties in enforcing these orders mean that a party may be tempted to refuse to comply with the document production order if it considers the requested documents to be damaging for its case. So this is the typical scenario. One party does not want to produce documents or maybe is not able to produce the documents. Mm -hmm. And the same Jeremy Sharp wrote that tribunals will potentially then infer that the party has something to hide and is likely to treat that party's future evidence with a degree of skepticism. So this is basically, it's a catch-all for a tribunal to say that, okay, you didn't do what we said you should do we will maybe uh, treat you in a less beneficial way or we may draw conclusions from the fact that you did not comply with our order. And that's, of course, the yellow part of it. There are no clear boundaries or definitions 
about this. We don't really know what it is and what, what it means for a tribunal's decision making ultimately. Right. It could be, I think you could view it, view it as a sanction. So if you do not do X, we will do Y, basically. You could also view it as uh, a gap filling. Evidence is missing, so the tribunal steps in and draws its own conclusions about the fact that it is missing and by extension also what the evidence says or could say if it were there. It could also be viewed as a tool in the tribunal's toolbox, which can be used as a threat, basically, to recalcitrant parties and hang it over their heads. Like, if you don't do what we say, we will draw adverse adverse inference from the fact that you don't do as we say. <laughs> we'll no, draw just... oh, yeah, inferences. Yeah. AI would be a good way of saying it if it doesn't mean something completely different. <laughs> well, we don't know, uh, basically, um, what it is. Uh, just if we are to categorize it, but it, it's quite possible that it's all of these things. Well, it's because you don't know you don't know what you're asking for, really. That's the problem. Your request is as as ambiguous as your relief, because you're basically saying I they're holding something and I don't know what it is, but I think I know what it is and I think they have it and they're not producing it. So now let's make give me some relief for that. Yeah, and it's it's what you have essentially. It's w what's left. Mm -hmm. We need we needed to do something with this. Can't you see that they are acting in bad faith or they are not complying with what you say? Please treat them accordingly, and then it's up to the tribunal to determine mm -hmm. actually what that is. Right. <laughs> but maybe we we could try to dig a little deeper into this to see if we if we can get some some sort of uh, outer frames at least on this. It is not something adverse inference that is that is typically regulated in the norms that govern international arbitration. Most national laws do not explicitly address it, but they do authorize arbitral tribunals to determine their own procedure to deal with evidence. So you could argue that implicitly they also authorize tribunals to, to draw adverse inferences. And there are a few national laws actually that explicitly deal with it. Uh, I think the, the typical example is the English Arbitration Act. And I think it's the same generally for arbitration rules as well, that they do not provide for it expressly, but they indirectly, you could argue, do so by giving the tribunal broad power to do whatever they want with the evidence, essentially. And this is where we connect a little bit back to the last episode's discussion with, with Mike McElrath, because it has to do, of course, with how the tribunal runs the procedure and how it treats the evidence. And just to stick with that previous episode, both the IBA guidelines on the checking of evidence and the prog rules deal with it. And there's a nice mirror of a pointer made by Mike, because the IBA rules deal with it exclusively in the context of document production, because the IBA rules are made for evidence checking after all. Right. Whereas the prog rules states more generally, and I'm reading from article 10 of the prog rules now, if a party does not follow orders or instructions of the arbitral tribunal, the tribunal may draw where appropriate an adverse inference with regard to that party's respective case or issue. So it's more of a blanket. It, it's not specifically addressed at evidence taking. It's in general, if a party does not follow orders, that may harm its case. Right. Which I think came up when Philip Hunsell's, um interview regarding intermeasures, for example. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Good. We're making cross-references. Here we go. <laughs> in, a few, in a few seasons from now, we'll be able to just look back and like see above and reference only <laughs> prior segments. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, back to the jello part of it. What do tribunals actually do in exercising this vague remedy, if it is even a remedy? And we have three examples from ICC practice, actually, that I thought might be relevant for us to go through just to illustrate. And example number one, so these are actual ICC cases, although obviously they are anonymous. In case number one, one party refused to produce certain documents and also failed to call certain of its own employees as witnesses. And concerning the witnesses, the tribunal decided not to draw an adverse inference because the requesting party had not attempted to call these witnesses at all. Oh. But concerning the documents, the tribunal acknowledged that the documents should have been produced and that there were only unconvincing reasons for the non-production. So uh, rather than entering into a proper analysis with a view to drawing a specific adverse inference, the tribunal decided to take this failure to produce into account quote, in a general way, end quote, <laughs> thus drawing, uh, quote, negative inference of a general nature, end quote. Right. And what I think does that this even is, mean? Yeah, what does that even mean? Exactly. This is the, the way in which I typically encounter this. It is discussed, but in this kind of way. It's basically saying that we noticed, don't worry, other party, we noticed and we considered it, but it's not specified in what way. Right. Uh, similarly, second ICC case, the claimant commenced arbitration against the respondent for unlawful use of know-how, and there was a potential witness which could have answered a crucial question as to whether the development of certain material was a commercial secret, which he allegedly learned from his previous employer, mm. the claimant, or whether it was a parallel development by his new employer, the respondent. And the respondent did not call the witness, and the claimant therefore requested adverse inference. And the tribunal refused to draw adverse inference, but it concluded that the inference sought, i.e. the witness used commercial secrets, it's obvious, otherwise he would have been here. Mm -hmm. Well, it was probable anyway, judging from this like surrounding facts of the case. So they also said expressly the tribunal that if the tribunal had any doubt, which it did not, it would have drawn the inference as sought, but they didn't see a need here because they were already convinced that this guy used commercial secrets. Well, so that's that's exactly what I think we're getting at, which is the burden of proof, but perhaps you're gonna to get to that after the... Uh, well, not really. Okay, uh, well, I mean, basically what this means is that, that uh, each party has a burden to prove the fact or legal principle that they assert, right? And if you're if you're handicapped by your ability to prove that assertion, then the adverse inference that you ask the tribunal to um, that you can ask the tribunal to draw is basically saying, hey, we can we can only prove what we can prove based off the resources that we have available to us. We know that there's documents on the other side, for example, that can help us prove our case, but they're not there because they, in bad faith, have not produced them. So you should be a little bit more lenient in the burden that you place on us to prove that fact, basically. So it's kind of, even though it's called an adverse inference, it's actually like, give us a leg up um, in right. our burden of proof. And that's also have, having to do with a witness as well. I've been in a case where the witness has blatantly lied right in front of us while we were conducting cross-examination. And you're sitting there being like, okay, well, you're not confirming anything. You're basically saying the exact opposite of everything that you want us to prove just for the purposes of being you know, a non-compliant witness and helping your case. So if that's happening, 
then what what do you do? You can ask the tribunal to say, okay, we'll draw an adverse inference at the at the point that this guy's blatantly lying about him, you know, a signature being forged and he wasn't at the meeting despite his name being on the minutes. It was just like, I don't know why my name isn't there. That wasn't me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you ask them to draw an adverse inference on his testimony, which in effect helps you prove your burden of proof. Right. Very good point. We, maybe we can just skip the third ICC case and move into something that I think is related to this briefly. And that's what I'm typically most interested in, which is investment arbitration. Hey. Because, because the scenario you just mentioned is, of course, uh, most frequent in investment arbitration. It happens mm -hmm. all the time in commercial arbitration as well, that one party has information that the other one wants and mm -hmm. there's an asymmetry in access. But it happens uh, always more or less in investment treaty arbitration specifically, where there is no direct agreement in most cases between the claimant and the respondent, i.e. the state, and the state being the state possesses all the documentation related to the investment uh, in because they are the state and they have public records and they know what's going on in their country. So the scenario that you're describing is very common in treaty cases where you typically have a claimant that knows that it has a case, but in order to prove the case, they need information that the state has. Yep. And this and the state may even use its own domestic law as a reason not to produce the documentation. Or even the IBA guidelines, that it's too burdensome, that the yeah, way that right. they have kept the documents, it's and it's going to be near impossible or take years for them to go through it and find it, so they're not going to produce it. Yeah, that's right. That was actually the third ICC case where oh, okay, they basically go. said that we had... Um, as a matter of company policy, it wasn't a treaty case. Mm. The emails they were asked to produce could not be produced because they uh, like uh, perch perch their servers regularly. Mm. So there's no way of uh, for us. Maybe you know we could pay some sort of uh, high tech firm to go back X years in time and see if they can recreate our servers, but uh, we can't basically because as far as we know they've been deleted and there's no way for us to to access them. See, I think in that case, and you can tell me the answer, is that the tribunal chose not to draw adverse inferences. It did, actually. Mother! Uh, <laughs> but once again, with very limited reasons and no explanation as to okay. whether or not the destruction of emails was, was reasonable. Basically, they observed something like companies do not normally dispose of their emails after a relatively short period of time. Oh, it was a short period of time. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Well, I'll be writing my dissenting opinion shortly. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love dissenting opinions. We have a good one in a case coming up. Joel, that, I want that, to <laughs> that like, reaction to the word dissenting opinion is bothersome and inappropriate. Please refrain from that <laughs> again. Because there is a case uh, which involves this, actually. But uh, before I move on to that, I just want to mention, because Rishab pointed to us, uh, pointed out to us uh, a very instructive article by Jeremy Sharp that I've already cited, where he distilled the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal uh, jurisprudence, the 36 volumes of published reports. <laughs> and based off of this, and this is uh, once again back to our discussion with Jawad about the Iran-US Claims State Claims Tribunal, um, it, it has a relevance for arbitration more widely because there were so many cases and they discussed matters that have a general relevance, including this. And he sort of deduced from the various cases where that tribunal had to deal with this issue of adverse inference. And he formulated the following five prong test for whether or not the tribunal should draw adverse inference. Oh, so, nice. OK. One, the party seeking the inference must produce all available evidence corroborating the inference sought. 
okay. reasonable. Two, the requested evidence must be accessible to the other party, which is, I think, Clearly. debatable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Three, the inference sought must be reasonable, consistent with facts in the record, and logically related to the likely nature of the evidence withheld. Right. Four, the party seeking the inference must produce prima facie evidence. So this is your point of uh, the the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. And fifth, the inference opponent, i.e. the respondent typically, must know or have reason to know of its obligation to produce evidence rebutting the inference sought. So this is, I think, a very helpful test for when adverse inference should be drawn from a failure to produce evidence. It does not really get us to what the outcome of such an inference is, however. Um, And it is hard to find an arbitral award, commercial or investment, which engages specifically with what it means, like what are the consequences Mm -hmm. of this. So we, we, I think, taking this test uh, on its face, we have at least guidance as to whether or not the tribunal ought to, in any given case, exercise or draw adverse inference. Adverse, advoc, yeah, screw it. You're doing great. Absolutely stellar. Thank you, my biggest supporter. (laughs) So there's no, that I know of, award where it's discussed uh, at length, but there are a few cases that have turned on this very issue. And now we move to a dissenting opinion. Hey, make your noise, Joel. Oh, dissenting opinion. Ah, love it. (laughs) (laughs) Because there is a classic case, Feldman versus Mexico, one of the first NAFTA cases, which concerned... Mexico's application of uh, certain tax laws to the export of tobacco products. And the claimant basically alleged that Mexico uh, improperly refused to rebate certain taxes applied to the claimant's company, while Mexico was at the same time extending those benefits to similarly situated Mexican companies. So this is uh, classic national treatment. Classic. And the tribunal in determining whether or not there was a violation of the national treatment provision, lamented the limited amount of relevant factual information in the record. But it did agree ultimately that Mexico had breached its obligation. And it concluded that the claimant had, quote, established a presumption and a prima facie case that the claimant has been treated in a different and less favorable manner than several Mexican-owned cigarette resellers and the respondent has failed to introduce any credible evidence into the record to rebut that presumption. Okay. So this is now familiar, given our introduction. The tribunal then also questioned Mexico's failure to produce evidence that was in Mexico's exclusive possession that could have disproved the claimant's prima facie case, asking, quote, why would any rational party have taken this approach if it had information in its possession that would have shown that the Mexican-owned cigarette exporters were being treated in the same manner as the claimant, end quote. So basically, if you had this, of course, you would have submitted it because it would have been good right. for your case. Right, and you right, did right, it, right. And we'll, we'll hold you accountable for it. Makes sense. So it said that it being the tribunal, it is entirely reasonable for the majority of this tribunal to make an inference based on the respondent's failure to present evidence. But there was a dissenting opinion, actually, uh, which uh, subsequently was, as is sometimes the case with good dissenting opinions, 
uh, accepted by other tribunals in later cases, for example, in Conoco Phillips versus Venezuela. And the dissenter, the dissenting arbitrator, said that, and I'll quote this because it's short but good, so give me 30 seconds. To be able to affirm that a state systematically violates its own laws in order to give a less favorable treatment to the investors of another state, or with any other purpose, evidence that clearly proves those facts must be had, I am of the opinion that for such affirmation, simple inferences are not enough. That if there exists a pattern of conduct, there would be diverse manifestations that would permit any of the parties to prove it in a convincing and reliable way. So a diametrically different view. There, We don't have the evidence, essentially, the arbitrator is saying. Right. Do you feel convinced by the dissent, as I quoted 2% of it? I I do. Do you? I'm not so sure. I mean, th this is really the crux of the matter, I think. W whether or not you, you could use the lack of something as a way to assume that the lack of something means that it's out there, it, it's just not shown to us. Well, I think it depends, because in this case, I think it's I think it's a bit... I think I understand, I agree with him on principle, but I think in this case it's a bit different because you're basically asking, you're accusing someone of a wrongdoing and then asking them to prove that there was actually right doing, but you don't you don't go around being like sending memoranda to each other being like, I'm glad we followed the rules today, right? Like, <laughs> you don't have that, you don't have, and that's the same thing with like bribery and fraud because you can't say, you can't, you, the existence of it, you have to have some sort of case put forward that says, okay, we did follow the law or we did, you know, the transaction exists on paper, but you can't then say, okay, well, you can't put a burden on a party to say, okay, prove that the bribery didn't happen. That's yeah, right. You, but you can put some sort of prima facie burden, which I guess is what the tribunal here yeah, did. And I yeah. think we both agree with that. If you can show both in corruption and in this scenario where there's a, a lack of document production, if you can show to a certain like lower bar that there is an indication, actually, that there's something fishy going on here, then the burden sort of shifts to the other party to uh, to disprove that. Yeah. I have one final case before I'm done with uh, professorializing. And it's an interesting case because it's it's different. I said before that in the investment treaty cases, it is typically the state who has access to the information and is on sort of the, the losing end of, of uh, adverse inference. But there is a case which is pretty well known, Europe Cement versus Turkey, an exit case where it was actually the other way around, where um, the claimant Europe Cement requested arbitration against Turkey and Turkey challenged the authenticity of copies of shared transfer agreements, uh, arguing that the claimant is not an investor for the purposes of the treaty, mm -hmm. which then the claimant, of course, said that we, we are. And the tribunal then ordered the claimant to produce the originals of these documents, the shared transfer agreements, or any other documents that would prove the authenticity of the shared transfer agreements. But the claimants could not produce or did not produce the documents ordered by the tribunal. And then Turkey said, you guys, tribunal, you must draw an adverse inference uh, that the, the copies of, of these agreements were fabricated, essentially. Right. Which the tribunal uh, more or less agreed with. They reviewed the evidence and, and drew an, an inference that the claimant had never obtained the shares and that its claim was fraudulent and ultimately actually rejected jurisdiction. And I, I agree with that as well. I mean, it, it, it goes to the like a forgery of a signature, for example, 
the party alleging a forgery of a signature has to put forward, for example, a, a handwriting analysis. Um, yeah. And let's say that the person did not submit themselves to that handwriting analysis and they say, no, this is ridiculous. Uh, for some reason, I think he's French. This is ridiculous. I will <laughs> never put myself in front of this tribunal for the handwriting analysis. And then th- then you would, in that situation, you would ask for the same relief because I think that that goes to the heart of the issue as well. Have you had any practical experience yourself with this? I realize it's a, it's a like narrow, specific thing but does it does it come up has it come up yes absolutely i mean specifically in document production uh and most specifically in investor state arbitration as you say because you're dealing with a state that is basically this you know omniscient being that should have all power all documents all knowing um but it's at the other end it is still like a bureaucratic system that yeah and it might be stored in some municipal office somewhere out in a province far far away they don't know exactly in the annals of time and then you're asking them to reproduce it then you're kind of getting into like okay let's weigh this and you're still going to ask for adverse inferences but then you really have to go into the facts of the situation and and kind of figure out why they're not producing it um and then that also goes in especially if you're dealing with a redfern schedule because that's when it comes up right you say okay well we're not gonna we can't produce this because it's overly burdensome um and you can't put an undue burden on us to produce this document or it would be too costly um, and then the justification of that undue burden definitely has a bearing on what the tribunal does with that information. But if we're mm-hmm. talking about any experience on how the tribunal assessed it or how the tribunal invoked an adverse inference as a way to make their decision, that's definitely a finger in the sky type of decision, I feel. Yes, that's a good note to end on, I think. We're back to what is often the case in right. arbitration. It's up to the arbitrators. <laughs> yeah, the divine tribunal. <laughs> uh, right. Thank you, Brian. I'm looking forward to learning about art arbitration. I am look forward to teaching it. This may be supplemented by an interview later on to kind of give us a real world tangible example, but it's happening more often than not now that, you know, the ability of us to, we're recording now, by the way, the ability of us to, um, you know, be able to track things a lot easier with forensic analysis and stuff like that. You're able to prove authenticity or find out where. There's an article that just came out, I don't know if you read this, um, that Macron has now approved the return of a lot of African. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, That's a right. lot of African, what's it called? Artifacts back to where they originated. Yeah, um, we had a big thing in Sweden as well, which I guess you've checked out from now with the, the Modern Museum in Stockholm. They're in the yeah. possession of a piece of art that uh, a, a Jewish family in somewhere in Central Europe alleges. Uh, originates from their, I don't know, great grandfather, grandfather or something and was taken by the Nazis and then ended up in Stockholm and they haven't solved it. I think the last thing I heard is that they are, uh, they initiated some sort of commission to investigate the, uh, the provenance. Interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's almost born arbitration once again, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, in fact, it's spy work trying to uh, collect art from all over the world using technology and like intelligence. Funny you say the word provenance because I learned what that was yesterday. Oh, someone turned. Okay. Well done, Joel. I turned to actually my colleague asked turned to me and was like, "What's that word for?" It's one word and it means authenticity, basically. 
um, and its provenance. Oh, I, I, you strike me as a guy who like buys expensive furniture online, <laughs> like auctions and stuff. <laughs> you need to know that word. <laughs> I, do. I do. I do. But I also, ergo, buy a lot of cheap copies, clearly, since I, okay. since I don't know the provenance. Yeah, provenance is never an issue for you. Um, but how do these dispute, because now like what you're talking about, you have these kind of um, investigative body that come in and try to figure it out. And now you're at this amicable settlement stage, basically. But like any other amicable settlement, sometimes it proves futile and sometimes it proves um, unnecessary and frustrating. So the, it will inevitably have to go to some sort of dispute resolution mechanism that will bring a binding decision. Um, why does it go to arbitration? Well, if you look at the other option, which is for it to go to court, um, a lot of people have commented that it's not necessarily the most proper entity for um, deciding these types of disputes. Um, these are, you know, courts that weigh evidence, may have not had the requisite expertise um, for them to know what actually authenticates art and how to show authentication. And then you're relying on um, expert testimony, which is then appointed by each specific party. Um, which can bring, you know, just the advocate bias point of view to um, to a case. And which is funny that people have pointed out that um, expert testimony is one of the reasons why courts aren't equipped to do that when they are considered biased, <laughs> because <laughs> that's basically what can be argued in any situation. So I don't think that that's right. I don't think that's I the most. I guess you also have enforcement issue, which is always the thing where arbitration wins over court. In the scenario where you get mm -hmm. uh, an outcome, you get a decision that right. uh, this, this has to be returned or whatever. It's much easier to enforce that under the New York Convention, for example, than uh, under whatever instrument applies to enforcing the the domestic court judgment. Right. The New York Convention police will come out and take the art <laughs> off your wall. Oh, my God. Could you imagine the NYC? Oh, NYCPD. There you go. <laughs> uh, so then where does it go? If it goes to arbitration, where does it go? Well, there is the Netherlands Arbitration Institute that has within it the Court of Arbitration for Art. There's also WIPO, um, the World Intellectual Property Organization, and then the Milan Chamber of Commerce, CAM, or Chamber of Arbitration, CAM. Um, so these are the places that have been known to deal with art arbitration, but we can focus primarily on the CAA, which is the Court of Arbitration for Art at the Netherlands Arbitration Institute. Um, and this was founded by the Institute in collaboration with the Authentication in Art Foundation, the AIA. Um, and according to the description on their website, um, which Rishi has helped us find, is that Authentications in Art comprises a group of prominent art world professionals who join together to create a forum that can catalyze and promote best practices in art authentication. They provide leadership-shaped dialogue and develop sound practice guidelines with global art community, including collectors, art historians, etc. Um, it's a pretty new thing, isn't it? I read about this when it was launched. The AIA? Yeah, no, this um, court arbitration for yes. art yes, collaboration. Yes, this is new. This is definitely new. And most significantly in, in these rules, basically, is that they have um, a specific because it all has to do with authentication, right? Where does it actually originate? So that inevitably falls on the experts to decide. 
Um, so parties can appoint their own experts on matters of forensic science and providence. Mm-hmm. It is only the tribunal that is empowered to appoint experts on these matters. So they, it's only tribunal appointed experts, which I think is quite interesting. Um, so you can't just find some hacky hack on the side of the road who's going to advocate your case and call themselves an expert, which I guess impliedly means that every other arbitration has hacky hacks on the side. Um, but they all form this expert pool, basically. Um, and they're responsible for, they're only responsible to the arbitral tribunal, which is where their loyalties lie, which should be every expert in the field. Um, yeah. But they. Party autonomy. Party part, autonomy. <laughs> exactly. Let's preserve it because it means equal rights. Um, so, how who is eligible to become part of this pool? Um, well, they must be current or former judges, law professors, or lawyers in private practice and have at least five years of experience dealing with authenticity, chains of title of art or cultural property, the purchase and sale of art through private sale, art copyright, the insurance of art and cultural property, museum exhibition and loan agreements, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, taxation, trust, estates, and succession, or import and export regulations, or international and or international arbitration. So if okay, a, good that they have a catch-all towards the end. Right. Uh, uh, otherwise, it sounds like of all the things that we've discussed over this season, this might be the most like niche, clicky part of arbitration. Like, yeah, the fewest uh, possible people that can uh, be eligible. Yeah. Exactly. No, they but all they want other. to point them smaller than sport <laughs> arbitration, even I guess. No, definitely. Um, but you can deviate from the pool as well. It's not obligatory, but you have to have the compelling reasons to do so. And the party must obtain consent of the NIA administrator in consultation with the AIA um, to be able to deviate from that pool. And the number of arbitrators, um, they provide that the default position is for three arbitrators and so unless the value of relief is below 500,000 euro. Um, the interestingly enough that well not interestingly enough but for interesting reasons the awards may be published although the party's identities will not be revealed um and they note mm. that the name or identity of the artwork in question may be revealed um but it may not be revealed and a lot of that has to do with the sale of art and why art is sold and how it's sold and how much it's sold for because um, you're dealing with these art collectors that are either buying and selling for millions of dollars and the reason why they're selling an art piece could mean that they need the money. Um, And if you're a rich person, you definitely want to be known as someone who needs money. Um, but it's 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 sort of analogous to people stealing art as well. Where I always think, like, why would you try to like do an elaborate heist to steal a world-known painting? Mm-hmm. How how big is the second-hand market for that? Because if 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 a major piece of art is sold or stolen, mm-hmm. it, it will be noticed, and the person who buys it or you know buys it from somebody who stole it will of course have a hard time revealing or uh, keeping their identity from being relieved. I guess because of the price. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that you know, if I had the actual Mona Lisa in my living room... Which he does. <laughs> you would notice, and, and somebody <laughs> would notice it was missing, and people would start looking into like the transaction and what happened, and what happened to this famous Rembrandt painting, blah, blah, blah. I, I realize there's, a, there's an important uh, need to, to keep that as confidential as possible, but at a certain point, if the artwork is known enough, it's got to be really, really hard. Mm-hmm. No, Absolutely. Um, which is why you definitely need experts at the field to dealing with this and not just, you know, a general court. 
Um, yeah, there's got to be a lot of arbitration people who are like our partners who love art, who don't really know anything about art, but who want to be want to be on the pool. pool. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, what are your requirements? I love art. Um, art lover was not one of the expert pool criteria. Actually. Probably a good thing. Every major law firm has at least one art loving partner. Who like so it. true. Well, did you hear what happened about the firm? I think uh, maybe we talked about this already on air. The a firm dissolved or a branch of a firm dissolved. Oh, I know who it is, but I'm not. We have not talked about this, and I will not okay, disclose no. their name. But they had a lot of really nice art in the law firm, and so when yeah, the when the law firm branch dissolved, it was like vultures descending on a carcass in the savanna, um, <laughs> because they're like the art is now up for growth, <laughs> and everyone was going after it. Um, because we're all about appearances in this field. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. go so, ahead. Go ahead. Speaking oh, yeah, of stealing, yeah. speaking of stealing, <laughs> World War II happened, um, and there was a lot of confiscation of art by the Nazis during World War II, as described as the greatest displacement of art in human history. Um, so there was a lot of claims coming out after the after World War II about over th you know, about three hundred thousand artworks that are still missing today, let alone probably in the wrong place as they should be. Um, so what happens when you are a survivor of the Holocaust or a descendant of a survivor in the Holocaust and you want to uh, have a claim for either restitution or to have the painting returned to you? Um, well, according to before this HERE Act, which I'll describe in a second, it was um, there was time limitations to be All able right. to bring a claim based off your claim. And so people that had no idea that they were that they even had family in the Holocaust, let alone after they described their lineage, found out that they had this art collection that therefore doesn't exist anymore. You definitely were over time and could and were barred from bringing your claim. So, in an attempt to dispel these uh, procedural time bars, forty-six countries signed the Holocaust-era assets conference Terizin Declaration in two thousand and nine, um, and they basically encouraged states to refrain from applying. So they discouraged them to um, apply legal provisions that may impede the restitution of art and cultural property. Um, and the U.S. actually, interestingly, decided to refrain from applying legal provisions to impede the restitution of art and cultural property by enacting the HERE Act, um, which provides in its introductory paragraphs that there have been numerous victims of Nazi persecution and their heirs have taken legal action to recover Nazi confiscated art. Um, these lawsuits face significant procedural obstacles due to state statutes of limitations. And in some cases, this means that claims expired before World War II even ended. Um, and then because of this, you know, World War II, this World War II, because of World War II and the Holocaust, um, it makes these procedural defenses especially burdensome for the victims and their heirs. So they have enacted this federal law which provides a uniform statute of limitations that imposes a six-year statute of limitations which commences when the plaintiff receives actual knowledge or has sufficient knowledge to amount to actual knowledge of either the identity and location of the artwork or to the plaintiff's possessory interest in the artwork, which I think is quite interesting. Um, yeah, and, it really is. But, and and uh, not, not to be all lawyerly here, and I realize that... Be all lawyerly. Uh, sorry? Be all lawyerly. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I will. And I have to just say that I realize that World War II and, and Nazis are bad, but retroactively changing statutes of limitations, I think, 
at least in the constitutional traditions that I know of, might have some constitutional issues or at least implications that you, 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 something that, that there was a certain statute of limitations at the time where the event happened, and mm-hmm. then you retroactively later you change it. I don't know. It just feels intuitively like something that might be unconstitutional in some countries that I know of. But I guess this was considered uh, in the in the U.S. specifically where they made it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. You you got it right. They actually there's been critique on the Here Act saying that it is unconstitutional for exactly that reason. So you're yeah, right. But then you have like uh, Holocaust survivors, and you have to weigh that against constitutionality of statute of limitations it's right it's pretty, pretty easy pretty sensitive as, as a human being <laughs> right 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 um so then the caa rules um do not seem to view war-related restitutions favorably because they provide that claims brought many years or decades even decades after a work has been taken could be barred if they are not pursued with reasonable diligence and other situations such as where evidence has been lost due to a long passage of time. So if they, you know, if there's evidence to show that they had a reason to believe earlier on that their descent or their predecessor had art collection and specifically a certain piece of art that they should have pursued it with diligence as soon as that became known. Um, And that kind of invokes this um, woman in gold movie, which was... um, Maria Altman, who was the descendant of a Holocaust victim, who was prevented from bringing her restitution claim for six paintings before Austrian courts. Um, One of them being Woman in Gold. One of them being Woman in Gold, which is the name of the piece. Um, So this dispute had all the makings of making an award-winning film, um, and it was the most expensive painting in the world, uh, and that's why it was, you know, so good for this movie. Um, but basically what happened is, I mean, it's quite a long chronology and I don't think we have the, the time to go through it, but basically she tried to bring her claim. Or oh, So the niece of the, it's complicated how this law goes through and it's <laughs> going to be very difficult to give an abbreviated summary of it. But basically the Austrian courts, um, so she requested a the restitution of a Klimt painting under a restitution act uh, before California courts. Um, and they rejected that that request for restitution. Um, but then Maria Altman, this niece of the heir who had the or the niece of the descendant, the predecessor who had the piece of art, challenged the decision before Austrian courts. Um, but she couldn't change her legal fee, uh, couldn't pay her legal fees, so she had to withdraw her claim. Um, but then what she did is that she sued the Republic of Austria and the Austrian National Gallery, which was the eventual gallery to get this Klimt painting. Um, in the Central District of California, alleging expropriation of property in violation of international law. Ooh. Um, so the Austria moved for the dismissal. So the respondent removed for the dismissal, alleging lack of subject matter jurisdiction, lack of venue, um, forum nonconvenience, etc. And the federal district court denied the defendant's motion for dismissal. And the Court of Appeals affirmed and then the United States court in the 2004 Supreme Court determined conclusively that the FSIA applies uh, applied to events that occurred before the acts enactment in 1976 and thereby overruling the jurisdictional immunity of the Republic of Austria. Um, unfortunately, it didn't come to an agreement. Um, or no, it, the, that didn't mean anything. It basically was just the decision on the sovereign immunity claim. 
Um, and so the Republic of Austria and Maria Altman reached an agreement to end litigation and submit the dispute to binding arbitration in Austria. Oh, so now we're in arbitration. Yeah, and this is also comes up in the movie. Um, and then the arbitral tribunal ruled that Austria was obliged to return the paintings um, back to Maria Altman. Um, Which she then sold four hours later. Yeah, for how much? Do you know how much money? It was like the most expensive painting in the world. Uh, no, I don't know, but I know it's in it's in the hundreds, maybe a hundred million dollars or something like that. All I know is that Helen Mirren was fantastic in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is, Joel, I mean, you know, not since we're running late, we'll just sum up with this question is how are states? I mean, you have Macron that basically just agrees to it. But is that what we're basically saying is that um, WIPO and the CAA is just going to have it? I mean, it, it's the only way for them to have jurisdiction over it is if the states comply. Right. Yeah. Right. And buy in. And buy into it. And that's exactly what you're saying with what Sweden's doing, basically, is that they say it's it's almost like a shame tactic to say, OK, well, you're a Nazi sympathizer if you keep this painting, so you better submit to arbitration. But technically, the state could say or the National Gallery could say, sorry. Right. We, we don't have, submit do to arbitration. I know we're running late, but I have a good story that's related to this because I had lunch like six months ago with a Swedish international law uh, expert, a pretty senior person who used to be the main legal advisor to the Swedish foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. And as part of that job, I think in the 1990s, he was tasked with going through basically the basement of the Swedish foreign ministry where they keep various things that the Swedish state has received as gifts or, you know, encountered over so the cool. centuries. Yeah, cool, cool job. And uh, at the bottom of a locker, they found a box, which basically, it, there was a handwritten note on the box, which just said, uh, keep this from the damn communists until they're gone or something. And it, <laughs> it, it turned out a Swedish physician had worked as a doctor to the Romanovs, ah. the personal doctor to the Romanov family. And inside the box were uh, a, a lot of jewelry basically like cufflinks and brooches and, you know, expensive, expensive, expensive stuff. No way. And he had just deposited with the Swedish foreign ministry just before the revolution on the assumption that it would blow over and then they can return it to the Romanovs. And as we know, that didn't happen. Oops. So this guy that I had lunch with was faced with the legal issue. Like, what the hell do we do with these pieces of jewelry now? Do we return them to Russia? Or is Russia even the same thing now as mm. you know, the Bolsheviks who, who won the or successfully overthrew the Romanos. I think what they ended up doing, similar to the Murray Altman case, is that they, they tracked down the appropriate heir and that person sold it on auction pretty quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it typically ties into interesting parts of history. And I think it's a good case for why you should enjoy art, generally. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I mean, but the fact that art has now come into arbitration is basically the the general consensus that anything that is a little bit too specific and a little bit too niche and a little bit too um, obscure needs to go to a tribunal that has the direct expertise to do so. And there's a lot of national courts that have, you know, securities chambers where, you know, all they do is discuss, you know, securities transactions because they are going to have the most expertise to do so. And I think that's what arbitration kind of fills that void is that it's because it's so flexible they're just able to draft rules and dispute resolution mechanisms to to adapt to all these different types of situations yeah yay arbitration we're an arbitration friendly podcast (laughs) (laughs) well 
for the happy fun time topic, let's see if we can dispel that myth somewhat and talk about when arbitration doesn't really work the way it's supposed <laughs> to. I think it's beer time. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> It's it's Friday afternoon, Brian. You're just back from a conference and you, you've filed in a case you're working on. I guess you are about to actually go out and have a happy fun time, right? <laughs> I'm actually going to enjoy this this London um, environment that I have immersed myself in, yes. Yeah, good for you. Thank you. And as a pre-party, let's talk about pathological arbitration clauses. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite type of pre-party. And just to um, recall... I went to a seminar in Stockholm with uh, the Secretaries General of the Arbitration Institutions in Stockholm, Milan, Vienna, and Cologne, when they discussed various topics. And the one that caught my eye the most is a familiar one. And I'm actually kind of surprised that we haven't uh, touched upon this before because it's such an interesting and funny topic, I think, and an obvious way to make fun of uh, people from outside of arbitration. So it, it fits nicely into what we want to do, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was said there, <clears throat> excuse me, at the seminar that the majority of the arbitration clauses that the institutions see are probably defective one way or the other and could cause problems if they were challenged, uh, challenged which is, of course, often not the case. So they uh, sort of interpret them and move on. And it, it's not a problem. Sometimes it is a problem, either because the other party does challenge the arbitration clause and argues that it is inoperable or because the institution or in the ad hoc scenario, the tribunal on its own realizes that this clause actually isn't sufficient expression of a consent to arbitration. Right. We, we can't accept jurisdiction based off of this. And I think many of the clauses that we had submitted to us were not really pathological, I guess. My understanding of the term pathological uh, in this sense, and in this context, the pathological arbitration clause is that the clause is unworkable. It cannot be understood, basically. Mm -hmm. It is inoperable. And that is, I mean, if we're being dogmatic about it, uh, many bad arbitration clauses are not pathological. They are just defective or, like, not optimal, but you can still use them as the basis of jurisdiction. Right. And I think many of those that were submitted ended up working eventually. But just as a background, this is where pro-arbitration comes in. If there is a prima facie hint that the parties want to go to arbitration as opposed to court, I think both institutions and tribunals tend to want to respect this and find a way to make the clause work. If it is at least clear from the badly drafted language that both parties agree to arbitration, that's something we tend to want to respect, I think. Right, which makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And that's like a good part of pro-arbitration. If, if it can be established that parties want arbitration, we should try and help them essentially. But what we always say, though, in teaching is this, don't be creative. And that was echoed by the last episode's guest, Mike McElrath, who has a plan for a lucrative consultancy. Here's what he said when we talked to him on drafting arbitration clauses. So what, what, what I've been thinking of doing is putting together a five-minute course on drafting arbitration agreements. I'm going to charge people 10 euros um, and I give them a certificate of completion. And, and I, it's guaranteed to, it's guaranteed to, 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 that you will, you'll always avoid 
the pathology. You will never have a pathological course if you stick to the principles. You'll never have a pathological clause if you stick to my, the principles I teach in my five-minute course. You, you want to hear it? Yes, please. So, here, so, so here's the course, all right? It goes, I get up and you know, I have people come in and I, I take their money, of course, you know. Um, and I say, um, thank you for being here today. Um, we're going, today we're going to cover everything you'll ever need to know and ever should use whenever you're drafting an arbitration agreement. Um, and here, here's what you need to know. Agree on a set of rules and then use their model clause. Thank you very much. <laughs> then we take a break for four minutes and 30 seconds. Um, it's a networking opportunity, networking, <laughs> we have coffee. That's included in the, in the cost of, of, of the, the, the 10 euros. Uh, it's, it's decent coffee. Um, and that's, that's my five minute course. So moving now to the clauses that were submitted or sent to us, and thank you very much, all listeners who sent us their favorite arbitration clauses. My personal favorite, and this is a nerdy, like minor thing, is an in-house lawyer in Stockholm who sent the following clause. The dispute shall be adjudicated by the Swedish Arbitration Act. Oh. Uh. Yeah, it's brilliant in its uh, simplistic failure to communicate what should be very clear. <laughs> and this, it's just grammar, I, I think. It sounds like, on the face of it, that the Swedish Arbitration Act is a person. Like, Swedish Arbitration Act is the arbitrator right. that shall adjudicate. But with a little bit of goodwill, of course, you can interpret this as meaning the dispute shall be adjudicated in accordance with the Swedish Arbitration Act or something like that. True. But in theory, if a person were to rename him or herself and take the legal name Swedish Arbitration Act, that person could reasonably claim to be nominated as an arbitrator. <laughs> <laughs> I should change my name in case any pathological arbitration okay. clause comes out. <laughs> Swedish Arbitration Act, that, well, that's me. <laughs> However, and this is something that, uh, that I just hinted at in the previous segment, that clauses that do specify the arbitrator are actually often rejected simply because it's impossible to find an arbitrator who fits the criteria as laid down in the clause. This is the JC thing. It becomes tricky. Maybe uh, saying that the arbitrator shall be African-American would work, but there are other examples of clauses that have not worked. For example, I once heard, I didn't see this myself, so I can't verify it, but I've heard about an ICC case where the clause specified that the arbitrator must be fluent in a very small language. I think it was Slovenian, but not be a citizen of Slovenia. And there are like, I don't know, 2 million people living in Slovenia. And it made it hard for the ICC to find a person who fit all the other qualification criteria and was, you know, an appropriate arbitrator, but knew the language well enough to conduct the arbitration in the language without actually being a citizen of that country. Interesting. Yeah. And risky business, going back to Mike's general point, like, don't be too creative. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. We also got some from the SEC archives, thanks to our friends at our former employer. And here is one, for example, that I actually think might be called pathological. All disputes shall, upon request of one of the parties, finally be settled by the International Court of Arbitration, Stockholm, Sweden, in accordance with the German-Finnish terms of arbitration. Well, come on now. <laughs> That's just making it very hard for the institution that it's submitted to, I think. And the International Court of Arbitration in Stockholm is a separate thing that I'll get back to a little bit later because this is interesting in itself, but it's the German-Finnish terms of arbitration that I think is the pathological part. 
I've never heard of this and Googling doesn't give you anything. As far as I know, there are no German Finnish terms of arbitration. Have you heard about that? <laughs> no, but I feel like that's like uh, an, arb an arbitration act or something. W one or two. Right. No. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. I mean, and that's another thing if, if you say, which happens, not in any clause that was submitted now, but you sometimes see clauses that combine applicable law and say, for example, in this case, then, if we tweak it a little bit, that the, in accordance with the German Arbitration Act and the Finnish Arbitration Act, which doesn't do the arbitrators any favors either. No, not at all. But the International Court of Arbitration in Stockholm point is interesting, and it touches upon a, a, a broader question, which we actually talked about, what they talked about, and I asked them a few questions at the seminar. Um, so consider this clause, which is another SEC clause, the disputes shall be settled by Stockholm arbitration in accordance with the rules of conciliation and arbitration of the International Chamber of Commerce. Okay. There's another one submitted by a Belarusian student at your old ICAL program, hmm. which reads as follows. Should it fail to settle disputes by means of negotiations, the disputes shall be referred for settlement without recourse to courts to the Court of Arbitration in Vienna, Austria, according to the law rules of the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris, France. Damn it. They were doing so well. I mean, well enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it was it was okay until the very end. And both of these two latter clauses that I read out have the same problems in that they expressly referred to one institution administering the arbitration under the rules of another institution. Right, which is a question on its own whether that's possible. Exactly. And this is what I asked the Secretary General up on the podium at this seminar, and they had different views on this. They had different approaches at their respective institutions. Some would be open to try to make it work, whereas some others were more hesitant to take on an arbitration like that. And um, the, the mirror image is also that some of them would be uncomfortable if another institution administered under their rules, while some basically would consider it a matter of pride like it's just a good thing if other people use our rules the more the merrier essentially right no of course and this i think has been tested i haven't looked this up now but i know there was a case and i think it was at the sec otherwise i would not have known about it where the sec actually went ahead and administered a case where the clause specified the icc rules and um my guess is that the ICC was not happy about this because the ICC rules are different in many ways from uh, most other rules, in particular when it comes to the scrutiny process that we have talked about a few times mm -hmm. before, that you have this like ICC court that scrutinizes the awards, and if it's another institution administering the case, there is no ICC court, and there's not even a body who is used to scrutinizing awards, so can they do it or should they do it? Right. And this is something that I think you can argue both ways, uh, depending on your your perspective, because the institutions are kind of selling a service. I mean, when you have an ICC arbitration, you use the ICC secretariat and the ICC court because they have drafted the rules. They have all the experience of the rules and they do this every day. They know the rules because they wrote them, literally. Right. That's what you buy. <clears throat> and it's not even within the party's scope of consent to have someone applies scrutiny that doesn't really know what they're doing? Yeah, well, I mean, in, I think, both of these cases, the two clauses, one saying that the SEC should do it, and on the other saying that VIAC should do it, mm -hmm. there you have the party's consent. They say it's a stupid consent, but it's a consent nonetheless. Right. Which, which basically says expressly that 
institution A should apply rules of institution B. And if the rules of institution B provide for scrutiny, then I guess you could make the argument that institution A has to do it. Mm-hmm. But don't do this. Yeah, yeah, this is like yeah, not not recommended. Don't do this at home. Don't try this at home. Um, do you want to hear another class? Yeah. That was sent to us. <laughs> and you you see the running theme here now. Most people who sent it has some sort of connection to Stockholm, and I think that's because Stockholm is the best place in the world to have international arbitrations. Hey. And the, here's another one that's just bad drafting. It's funny just because of the language. Disputes shall be referred to and determined by Arbitrators Institute of Chamber Trade of Stockholm as the sole and exclusive remedy of the parties as to the dispute, with a uh, capital D, conducted in accordance with the ancestral arbitration rules. Well, okay. Yeah, I see what you're feeling. It's bad drafting in terms of language, but with a little effort, you can deduce what you they can, want. Right. <laughs> I mean, because then you basically have an SEC administering an institutional dispute. Yeah, but I mean, that's only because there's only one institution in Stockholm. Right. But in theory, if, if there was another one, the because the SEC is not called the Arbitrators Institute of Chamber Trade of Stockholm. <laughs> it just sounds like a really bad translation. It's a Google translated version <laughs> yeah. of the. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Probably, but... actually. I'm oh, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, because this is actually a new thing that the SEC has done is that they've published their practice on how to administer an institutional dispute. Because basically, if you have an institutional dispute, and even the ICC does this now, is that if you have an institutional or an ad hoc, just not even institutional, but an ad hoc dispute in general, that the rules provide that there is some sort of or not only the rules expressly but um you know there uh, there is practice that has been published that says that these institutes will still administer it um then i yeah, think that yeah. clause doesn't need to be totally wrecked on that ground but it depends on that clause was written um yeah i, I agree that's the difference between the uncentral rules or pure ad hoc arbitration mm -hmm. compared to other institutional rules because the uncentral rules are actually made with this sort of in mind it should be possible to right. administer it so so that in itself is not a, an issue i think right the, the now, thing is we hear this sorry we, we hear this all the time and it's just a matter it's at the drafting phase and i talked to a, a transactional lawyer the other day about this when i was saying i was preparing for it and he was, and he said, we don't care. <laughs> we, we just like, I get, get to that phase of the transaction and we send it downstairs to be drafted in like, you know, minutes before we're supposed to file and they send it back up and that's it. There's no scrutiny or there's no discussion with the client. It's like, all right, put in the disputes clause. All right. Done. Yeah, that's right. And then as Mike said, that's of course where, when you should just copy paste from the institution's recommendations. There but you go. Then, as I asked him, there are, of course, cases where you don't want institutional arbitration for some reason. You want an ad hoc case, and then you have way more room to be creative. And it's so much fun, especially as an arbitration lawyer. This is like the fun part of our business, you know, try to pick up the best and like figure out where should the place of arbitration be, who should mm -hmm. administer, should we specify the arbitrators, you know. Mm -hmm. There's so much room to use your knowledge in, a, in an intriguing way, or it's hard to, to stay away from it. But, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you probably should i've written i think two exam questions which in part turned on pathological causes that i made up and that was a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> well they talked about that at the written advocacy panel they basically said 
that you know your writing style should very should be very short to the point and succinct and one of the yeah. person and one one of the tribute one of the panel members said the reason why you do that is because you don't i mean for many reasons but one of the reasons is that you don't open yourself up to unnecessary criticism and critique and that's exactly what this is is yeah yeah just get the job yeah. done refer exactly. it to arbitration unfortunately clause drafting is not supposed to be fun right it's supposed to be a minimalistic craft in which you minimize any risk of misunderstanding further down the line. Unfortunately, I just want to mention, finally, we did not get any 3D clauses submitted, actually, which makes perfect sense. Uh, but I think it's an interesting fact to note that I don't think there have been any cases where the 3D in an investment case was not clear enough. Not, not any cases, but I have seen some. Yeah, there are a few stupid early clauses. I've read a few from like the 60s and 70s before states or really anybody had figured out what investment right. arbitration was like when an exit arbitration in a clause that's obviously meant for investor state arbitration where it specifically states that it is the states who has who have to initiate the exit case, which is not even allowed under the exit convention. That would not work. But I think for better or for worse, as we've discussed a bunch of times, most investment treaties are copied and pasted. And that's why people are upset with like the FAT and FSP and mm -hmm. MFN and everything that, you know, it's it's just two short sentences lifted from another treaty, essentially, which is a bad thing substantively, or it may create problems substantially, but procedurally, it's actually a good idea going back to the, the model class idea, mm -hmm. that if, if you have one that works, just stick with it. Amen. Amen. Okay. Do you want to run out into the London night? <laughs> no, we're, we're actually having an all-day conference that I just Oh, that's out. right. And once again, you're one hour after me, so it's still early afternoon. It still is early afternoon. The um, I just want to thank, you know, our researcher again. Rishi did a great job with these um, research topics. They were very niche and very specific, and he delivered some excellent material. We're very happy to have him on the team. Indeed. And Jan Kunster for sticking with us and helping us with all the tech stuff, although he's a much better lawyer than either of us. Yeah. And thank you to Luke Eric Peterson again, IU reporter, our loyal supporter for this season. Yes, write to us at the arbitration station at gmail.com and follow us at the ARB station. It's great to have everyone still listening. We're growing every day. Thanks. We're on OG Mid. Check us out. I just realized, Brian, that the next time we're supposed to air this is on Christmas Day. Ah. The next episode. Have we figured out a way to do that? No. No, well, we will wrap it. Let's see what happens. Bow. I guess people are off. If it's like December 25th, it might be a good idea to just throw out uh, an episode so people have something to do. Or I have to finish my PhD and you want to get some time off. So maybe we'll wait another week or two. Let's I don't see what know. Happens. I, uh, I always hate it when my TV, sh my, when my soaps aren't being shown on Christmas or like during award seasons because then they all, all people skip it. But I think it's different for us since we're not on a, a broadcast network. Oh, yeah. TBD. I TBD. Think. TBD for C. That's Christmas. Okay. Have a great weekend, man. You too.